talking to us now about, and this is one of the probably worst things you can do to someone who's about to speak in it. <laughs> it, it last time I heard it was excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, now, what, what, what we captured, I just, it's, it's wonderful to have Simon because he, he, he sees the gospel and the movements of God and how everyone can play, play a part in that. And it's so thrilling to, to, to see his heart and to see what he's bringing to us today. Um, let me tell you a little bit about Simon. Um, Simon come from another country and um, they've never been good at cricket. <laughs> And, uh, and that's as much as you want to say. Um, uh, Simon, sales? That's the big thing you do. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and I've told him some of my sailing stories, and he's not very keen to come with me anymore. Um, uh, number of kids, bunch of kids, three kids? Three and one, two and Three and another one on the way uh, with Beck. And um, uh, living in North Sydney area, going to church at North Sydney, um, and, um, uh, and a house up on the Central Coast. But um, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit, too, about... The, the work you're involved in and then jump straight into this uh, presentation. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I work in the finance industry uh, in Sydney. Um, I sort of come from an engineering background, actually, and uh, I uh, moved from engineering into strategy consulting about uh, 20 years ago now. And so, uh, as Andrew said, I think sort of part of what's led me to what I'm going to talk to you about today is just a... Uh, a desire to step back uh, and look at history and look at the history of great movements of the gospel, um, which sort of flows, I think, from that sort of strategy kind of brain that I developed in those years. Um, as you know, as I as I look around the room today, uh, it's incredibly exciting. You know, this this movement has been in existence for 12 months. And to look at what this room represents in terms of the potential for the gospel in Australia is very exciting. And if I fast forward, and I think forward five years, I think forward ten years, uh, one thing's for sure, it'll be a cooler room. Um, but it will also be, uh, I'm quite, quite sure, a much, much bigger room. This is a, a movement uh, that has the potential to change the face of this nation. And... What I want to do today is just spend a bit of time looking at similar movements in history that have changed the faces of nations. And to look at one characteristic in particular, which is um, when you look at those movements, what you see is that God has raised up uh, gifted men to take those movements forward, men who love the Lord Jesus, who are gifted preachers of God's word. But the other thing that God has done, again and again you see it in history, is that he's raised up men and women what I call gospel patrons, to stand with those men, to stand behind them in terms of their resources, but to stand with them in their struggles and their sufferings as well. And that's what I want to share with you today. And then at the end, sort of bring it, bring it back to what's the so what uh, for you guys who are out there breaking new ground uh, in church plants in the years to come. So what are some of the movements we're going to look at? Well, I guess you could point to the first translation of the Bible into English as being uh, the seed of the English Reformation back in the 15th century. So we're going to look at that quickly and the life of uh, William Tyndale and who stood behind him. The evangelical revival in England uh, in the 18th century. Uh, and of course, what also flowed out of that was the uh, slavery movement, the abolition of slavery. And of course, John Newton uh, was central in both of those things. 
uh, but so will Whitfield, so will Wesley in terms of that great movement of evangelical revival in England. And of course, from Whitfield's perspective, he went to America and he was central to the Great Awakening, the evangelical awakening in America in the late 19th century. Uh, and then uh, we're going to look just briefly at Hudson Taylor and the birth of the Chinese church uh, in the 19th century as well. So let's look at each of those. And as I do, I'll talk about the men that God raised up to lead those movements and how he used them, what, the, what was on their heart. But then I'll also look at the men and women who stood behind them, as I said, the so-called gospel patrons. So William Tyndale. Well, William Tyndale lived in 1490, between 19, 1494 and 1536. He died an untimely death, as I'm sure you're aware. He was garroted in the Low Countries uh, at a young age for what he was doing to upset the status quo in England. His vision, uh, which you're probably very familiar with, was to see a Bible in the hand of every plowboy in England in his own language. What a wonderful vision. The risks that he took were very great. He had to flee the state authorities, um, the, uh, the state authorities in England. He went to the continent. The sacrifice that he made ultimately was his life. But the legacy that he left is a legacy that we're all beneficiaries of today, 500 years later. What a, what a foundation that man laid uh, for gospel ministry uh, through the centuries. But the lesser-known person in William Tyndale's life was a man called Humphrey Monmouth. Monmouth was a cloth merchant. Uh, and when Tyndale went to the then Bishop of London to get permission to translate the Bible into English, uh, unsurprisingly, he was refused. Uh, and it was Monmouth who took Tyndale in to be his, uh, his personal chaplain. So Monmouth gave him um, the opportunity in the three years that he was with, Tyndale was with Monmouth to continue his work. And then when the time came for, uh, for Tyndale to try to get the Bible published and back into the hands of people in England, he had to, he had to go to the continent to continue his work, to make contact with the, with the new presses, uh, the new Heidelberg presses that we were being established. And it was Monmouth who facilitated that. Monmouth paid for him, gave him uh, a network and protection, put him in touch with his business contacts. Uh, and then quite amusingly, it was Monmouth who provided the means of getting those manuscripts back into England by having them smuggled back into England in bolts of cloth. He was a cloth merchant, so he was bringing cloth back from Europe. And it's uh, ironic, isn't it, that probably some of those bolts of cloth were purple, and they probably ended up clothing the hierarchy of the Church of England at that time, who were trying to track Tyndale down to kill him. So Monmouth provided him with protection, he provided him with money, he provided him with contacts. He gave him three years where he could live with his family. Monmouth was a gospel patron. He was a man who saw that what Tyndale do was doing was very, very important, and he stood with him, and he took great risks. If the authorities uh, had known how much support he was giving Tyndale, no doubt it would have uh, gravely affected uh, his business. John Newton. John Newton, uh, 1725 to 1807, we sung one of his hymns this morning. Uh, his story is very familiar to us, isn't it? A slave trader uh, who was uh, radically converted in a mid-Atlantic storm, um, didn't quite get it right in the early years of uh, his conversion, but ultimately became one of the most influential evangelical ministers uh, of his generation. What we often don't hear about Newton was he was a great trainer of men. Uh, he was a great writer of resources. 
And of course, one of the onflow effects of his ministry was his relationship with William Wilberforce uh, and all that he contributed to uh, the abolition of the slave trade and ultimately uh, slavery. So he has a twofold legacy, a legacy of great gospel ministry, but also a legacy of a great social movement and a great social change for the benefit of mankind. Who was the man who stood behind John Newton? Well, he was a man called John Thornton. John Thornton was purportedly the richest merchant in England uh, of his era. He uh, was converted in 1754 uh, in Clapham uh, in England. Uh, he lent great financial support to Newton uh, through his uh, ministry in Olney and Buckinghamshire. He was the man who brought Newton down to Woolnoth. One of the things that, uh, that uh, Thornton recognized, is it interesting, just to sort of to, to, uh, digress, Thornton, in around 1754, when he was converted, believed, uh, for himself at least, that there were no more than probably half a dozen pulpits in England, as he put it, that were preaching the gospel. And most of those were in London. <clears throat> 150 years later, it's estimated that something like 25% of the pulpits in the Church of England by the end of the 19th century were evangelical and were preaching the gospel. And one of the things that Thornton realized, and he then passed on, uh, I believe, to Charles Simeon, was the recognition that one of the ways in which patrons could be supportive of what was required to make this great strategic shift was to buy what was called livings. So in those days, you could actually buy the right to appoint rectors in churches. And so Thornton set out to buy livings and put in the young men who were trained both by Newton and by one of his other great friends, a guy called William Bull, uh, into those ministries. Simeon continued that work. I believe that the, the two, through the ministry of Henry Venn in Cambridge, became close. And Simeon got some of his ideas for the Simeon Trust from John Thornton. So Thornton thought strategically in terms of the whole uh, livings ministry. He supported the uh, development of a theological college for dissenting ministers. Uh, as I said, under the, uh, under the leadership of his friend, uh, William Bull. He was also, uh, because of his connections, being a wealthy man and through the relationship with Selina, Countess of Huntingdon, he developed a close relationship with the Earl of Dartmouth, who was the secretary for the colonies uh, in the late 18th century. And together, he and Dartmouth ensured that a number of the chaplains who went out to the colonies, both in America and in England and in Australia, were evangelicals. Richard Johnson, um, you know, the forebear of us, of evangelicalism in Australia, was a direct result of the work that Thornton was doing together, conspiring with the Earl of Dartmouth. And in fact, one of uh, Johnson's prized possessions uh, was a Bible that was given to him by John Thornton before he came out uh, on the ship to, uh, to Australia. So he was a great encourager of Newton, of the young men whom Newton was training, he was a great encourager of William Cooper, William Cowper, uh, the poet, uh, who, as some of you will know, was taken under the wing of Newton uh, and is a great uh, poet and hymn writer, and together with Newton wrote the Ol Olney hymns. Um, Thornton was very self-giving. Uh, he went away. He took the men that he was uh, supporting, that he was the patron of, uh, away to support them on holidays, to give them a break uh, from uh, the hard work that they were doing. He provided advice, encouragement, and I'm sure rebuke uh, at times as well. He was respected 
as a theological brain. So the men uh, whom uh, he was supporting would go to him to ask uh, his advice. So he was relationally deeply involved with Newton and the others whom he was supporting. Wesley, the Wesley brothers, uh, and George Whitfield. Uh, I'm sure I don't need to say much about uh, the movements that they established uh, and the way that God used them to bring the gospel uh, to all parts of Britain uh, and to the colonies in America. They were truly light in a corrupt age. Their ministries were to rich and poor. Uh, Whitfield would at once preach to the gentry, the aristocracy in Selina, Countess of Huntingdon's drawing room. And the same evening, he would go to the kitchens and preach to the poor of the area uh, as they were fed from her kitchens. Their ministry spread across England and America. As I said, they were, uh, they were um, key players in the evangelical revival and the Great Awakening in North America. But who stood behind them was an extraordinary woman called Selina, Countess of Huntingdon. She um, helped to fund 64 chapels, 64 church plants uh, across, uh, across England. She established a training college at a place called Treveca in Wales uh, for gospel ministry. She was an evangelist in her own right. She saw it as a privileged position that he was in, she was in, being a member of the aristocracy, to preach the gospel and see the gospel preached, particularly through Whitfield, to as many of the nobility in England uh, as she could reach. She was actively involved with uh, those men that she supported. She was a wise counselor. She was consulted by John Wesley on issues of uh, theology, and she, in fact, pushed back on him very strongly on his antinomianism, and, in fact, is one of the reasons why the relationship between the two over time diverged. Henry Venn was her student on the atonement. This is a layperson, but Henry Venn, who was a great gospel man, saw her as being very uh, rich in her theological understanding. So Thornton and Huntingdon together Two examples of gospel patrons, yes, they were well-resourced, but their, their patronage was much more than just the financial resource. It was the way that they supported the men that they were in, um, in partnership with relationally and indeed sacrificially. And then uh, last of all, uh, Hudson Taylor. Well, again, I'm sure uh, we know much about um, his ministry. Uh, he was the man who established the China Inland Mission um, it was a mission that was responsible for bringing over 800 missionaries to China. Um, 125 schools were established under its auspices. And his mission um, directly resulted, we understand, in something like 18,000 uh, Christian conversions in that country, as well as the establishment of 300 stations of work uh, and the recruitment of more than 500 local helpers uh, in all 18 provinces across China. He understood holistic ministry. He understood that he needed to reach the people with the gospel, but in the context of caring for uh, their everyday needs. But he was evangelistically driven. Listen to what he had to say. If I had a thousand pounds, China should have it. If I had a thousand lives, China should have them. No, no, not China, but Christ. Can we do too much for him? Can we do enough for such a precious savior? And, of course, the legacy of Hudson Taylor and the work that he initiated through the China Inland Mission, mission is the church in China today, which is such a potent force for change in that country. 
in a spiritual sense, and which is the fastest growing church uh, in the world. So what a legacy um, belongs to uh, Hudson Taylor and the work that God gave him to do. But the man who stood behind Hudson Taylor is a man called William Berger. William Berger ran a company uh, called Samuel Berger and Company. It was a rice starch company uh, in the northern part of England. And it was Berger who provided the initial funding for Hudson Taylor to go to China. He continued to bring support together behind the China Inland Mission. And it was difficult because the, the communications lines between China and England were very, very bad. Uh, a lot of bad reports sometimes came back to uh, the English press. And it was Berger who had to, uh, as, the, uh, as the local director of the Chiland, uh, first home director, had to stand before the press uh, and defend what uh, was going on uh, and the criticism that was being leveled uh, at uh, Taylor and his ministry. So there you are, a few uh, networks that have, uh, a few movements that have changed the world. A few movements where God has raised up great men, great gifted men, to take the gospel forward. But also movements that have benefited from God also raising up uh, great men and women to stand behind and to stand with these men uh, in their ministries. Well, I think the application to us today, in some respects, uh, is evident. Uh, each of you who are planters, each of you who are potential planters, you're breaking new ground just in the way that these men that I've talked about were breaking new ground in their generation. I said I think that as Geneva grows, this is a movement that has the potential to change the face of our nation. It is a great, great vision. And it's a big vision, isn't it? It's a big vision. And God has equipped you guys to go forward and to bring that uh, to reality. But what I'd encourage you uh, with, beyond what Geneva uh, provides in terms of the network, in terms of the resources, in terms of these sorts of meetings where you're growing, learning, seeing how to do things differently, better, all of those things are very, very important. They're central to what you're about. But I'd also encourage you to look at those examples that I've been talking about this morning and recognize that God is also raising up patrons. And he's raising up patrons for you to find and to bring them into partnership with you. Because if you do that, then I do believe from what we've seen in history and what you see even in, uh, in, in scripture, Lydia, Luke. Luke was a gospel patron, wasn't he? He gave up a comfortable GP job uh, to go off and uh, support Paul in his travels and to record for posterity what we now have uh, in his gospel and in Acts. Um, so Luke in, even uh, was a patron in his own way. So I really encourage you to think about who around in your networks could be your patrons, could be the people that you can team with, who can provide resources, but more than resources, what is the shape of patronage? What are the things that as you think about doing that, you should be looking for? Well, I think there are three characteristics of the patrons that I've uh, talked about this morning that, um, that you need to focus on. The first is that these patrons all had word ministry as their priority. It wasn't exclusive, so Thornton established a society for the discharge and relief of, uh, of the poor. 
uh, who had been in prison for small debts, which was a wonderful ministry. But his primary focus was supporting word ministry. It was supporting Newton. It was supporting William Bull. It was supporting the young men that they were training. It was supporting the establishment of a theological college. It was about relationship. As I hope I've, I've communicated through these examples, it wasn't just checkbook philanthropy. These patrons were deeply involved with the people that they were in partnership with. Which leads into the third point, because in, at times, those relationships required sacrifice. I talked about the risks uh, that, um, that uh, Humphrey Monmouth took in supporting Tyndall. Both Thornton and Selina uh, could, in many respects, uh, have had all that that society. This was, this was an era in England that was called the Regency period. It was probably one of the most hedonistic periods of English history. And Selina and, Thornton, Selina and Thornton laid that aside to do the ministry that they had been given to do, which was to be patrons of great men who were changing the world. So I just want to leave you with a couple of quotes, one about Thornton, uh, one about Selina, Countess of Huntington, actually in her own words, to give you a sense of the sort of patrons, if you can find them, that I think will transform your ministries and in transforming your ministries will help to transform the face of our nation. Listen to this from Henry Venn uh, of John Thornton. Venn says this on his death. Few of the followers of the Lamb have ever done more to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and help all that suffer adversity, and to spread the savor of the knowledge of Christ crucified. And Selina says this. She says, I want my heart on fire always, not for self-delight, but to spread the gospel from pole to pole. Well, if you can find patrons like that to support you, I suspect it will aid your ministry quite a lot. Thanks. Yeah, We do have time for a few questions if you